Welcome again to the Feast of Tabernacles. This day pictures the dawn of a new era. It's a new age in the story of God's plan for mankind. And this week is a time when we are very still human, ourselves, here at the feast. And we're still very physical, yet we're able to enjoy a lifestyle that is different and better than our usual life. We can relax and we can enjoy each other's company. We can enjoy physical blessings uh, away from the hustle and the bustle of our normal everyday life. And mankind, while still physical, will soon experience a rest from the trials, from the struggles, and the sufferings of what has been a difficult existence for 6,000 years. In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 34, we read here in this account, this, this dream, this explanation of a dream, of Nebuchadnezzar by Daniel. He says in verse 34, you watched while a stone was cut out without hands. So he goes to the end of the dream and he talks about the establishment of a new kingdom that would replace Nebuchadnezzar's as well as the other world ruling kingdoms. And he says, you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And he says, verse 34, he he recounts, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And he says, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So what a day that will be. Imagine an end to the selfishness. Imagine into the wastefulness and the destructiveness of mankind and all the kingdoms of mankind. Nations will not compete and fight and struggle against one another anymore. In Micah chapter 4, we read how people will turn spears into pruning hooks, we read, and, and swords into plowshares. We read that in Micah chapter 4. And they won't learn war anymore. So Christ will usher in that age. Uh, we talked about that on the, the day of trumpets. And we know that Satan will not be there to harass mankind and infuse his evil spirit into each and every, every one of the humans that are, are there. And we learned about that on the day of atonement. But how will that new age, that new world order, so to speak, function in practical terms? When you were first called into the truth of God, you probably learned about the feast. You heard about the feast and began to learn. You probably got a general idea about what it was like from conversation with other brethren. But you had to ask more specific questions to prepare for the feast in, in practical terms. What clothes to bring? How to prepare for meals? What were the services like? What were the activities like? And, and you had to learn about the practical aspect of it. We should ask the same thing about our part in God's kingdom. What practical considerations do we need to prepare for in order to fulfill our part in God's millennial government? Uh, how will society function? We know that it won't take on the characteristics of man's society. We just read that man's society will be crushed. It won't look like man's society. It won't look like that. Remember how... Daniel was very clear about how it would be crushed. But how will it function? 
uh, there are many practical considerations that will need to be considered. Uh, issues concerning the rebuilding of cities and the infrastructure. Uh, what about education? How to handle crime? How to handle justice, transportation, communication? But one area that I like to focus on today is an area that is on many of our minds today. You see, because every day we're hearing more and more ominous news about the imminent collapse of our economic system. And in the news and the headlines every day, there is debate about how to handle our, our financial system, how to handle our medical system. And, and we're all on, on the economic system is regularly, daily on our minds as a nation, as people, as individuals, and simply trying to survive in order to try to, to, to make it through another day, another week, another month financially. Economics is on our, our mind today. And we're seeing the flaws and, and the cracks with, with frightening clarity as we go forward. But the question for us, in terms of our job of working with Christ to build an, a new world order, is this. Could you or I do any better than those who have come before us? Those great minds working on economic issues today. Could we do any better? Well, here's the short answer. Well, we must. We must. Christ expects us to do better as his representatives. So if we're going to write a different history than what mankind has experienced for the last 6,000 years, then God's revelation in terms of economics will be critical. The pages of our history books are, are punctuated by, by wars, by famines, by drought, by disease epidemics, and the rise and fall of kings and kingdoms. These are the pivotal events throughout history. But all of these are also about economics, because economics are all part of the fabric of daily events in the rise and fall of kingdoms and in the daily events in the life of, of, of people, the public commerce, the production of goods and services, the exchange of those goods, the accumulation of wealth in commodities and currencies, and the destruction or the capture or the transfer of that wealth. All of that is part of history woven into the fabric of history through the ages. So history is economics. And that's why God's instruction manual for Israel, which could have written their successful history, contained a revelation of the outline for a successful economy, uh, for both micro and macroeconomics, for the individual and for the nation, this manual explained how to do it right. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 4, God told Israel, as through Moses, as he established their, their way of living, he established the principles for how they were supposed to function as a nation. He says, verse 4, But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, he says, be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Wise and understanding because they follow the principles, the statutes, the laws of God. And the result 
of the keeping of those laws would have been good, would have been blessings. The result of keeping of these laws in the future will be blessings galore. Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26. We read in verse, in verse 3. God told them, he said, verse 3, If you walk in my statutes, and you keep my commandments and perform them, then I will, and he goes on to talk about the blessings that would accrue. And as you read through these blessings, being able to eat bread to the full and peace, and we read through the, the verses here, we see a time of prosperity based on the obedience to God and his statutes. But it's, it's, it's filled out, you might say, with economics in the food they were going to be able to eat, the blessings they would in, enjoy as, as a people. So the question then for us is, if we're going to be instruments of God in teaching his commands and bringing blessings upon the human kingdoms that we, that we help assist Christ in reigning over, the question is, what are those guidelines of God's millennial economic systems. If you want to put a, a title on the sermon for today, the title that I, I have used is Economics at the Dawn of a New Age. Economics at the Dawn of a New Age. What are the principles that God gives to us? Now, that's what we'll focus upon here in the, in the sermon. Now, let's begin with the first principle you may think this is this is very this is very basic and fundamental, and you may not have necessarily tied it into economics, but it is a, it is in, indeed a very important a core point to the economics that God has established. Economic principles. Let's go back to Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26, and as we read forward, verse uh, five and six, we read about threshing and eating and peace in the land. And we go to verse 9, he says, For I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old, clear out the old because of the new. And I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. So we see that right here, right up front, God says that he will be the source of economic well-being. Now, God's economic system requires a step, or sometimes we may perceive it as a, a leap of faith. It required a, a leap of faith for Israel to follow Moses out of Egypt. There was no guarantee of survival in the land to which they were going. Uh, the Egyptian nation was, was powerful, with a powerful economy, materially, material abundance, enough so that they were able to do great public works. Uh, they were, uh, they did those somewhat on the, on the backs of the subjugated peoples, but they did great public works. And, and this has been true, this point of God's economic system requiring, requiring a step or a leap of faith in God. That principle has been true since God started working with man. Think about Noah. In order for Noah to do what he did, he had to have faith in God. Abraham had to have faith in God. They had to turn their backs on economic 
you might say, economic certainty to gain economic well-being. Let's look at an example here, Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 16. So the first part we're going to talk about here is the economics of faith. The economics of faith. Exodus chapter 16, I'll show you what I mean as we, as we look at the story of the Israelites going out of Egypt. Exodus chapter 16, verse 1, we read how they journeyed as they were on their way out of, out of Egypt, and it recounts the different places. And we see verse 2, the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now look what God did. He, he accomplished a couple of different things. He, he fed them. He gave them food. But we see he also did something else. Verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go, shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or, or not. So we see as he provided food for them, he also, with that food, he gave them a lesson. He taught them a lesson. And we can see this lesson, and I'm not going to read through the whole chapter here, but as you continue down through the through the, the, the chapter, you see that lesson revolved around the Sabbath day. He said, verse 5, It shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. So the sixth day was different because it was in preparation for the Sabbath day. He says, verse 6, And Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he went on and he explained to them how he was going to provide them with, with food. But as you go through the chapter, you see verse 22, So it was on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread to omers for each one. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. And he said to them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. And in this case, we see, as opposed to the other days where they could not, they, they could not save for the next day. In this case, when they did, it did not stink. Verse 24, nor were there any worms in it. So we see the, the command to keep the Sabbath as he began to work with the Israelites, the, the, the command to keep the Sabbath rest was, was pivotal. It was vital to them as they began to learn to obey him. And that was why he focused on it first. It required a trust in God's ability to support seven days of prosperity on six days of work. So in God's economic system, we find a fundamental principle, a fundamental principle. God will provide, but he provides based on our faith in him. So you might say, you might say it boils down to an equation. You can think about it this way. Human faithfulness and effort plus God's involvement exceeds human productivity. That's, that's the equation. If you don't jot down anything else up to this point, jot that down. Again, in God's economic system, human faithfulness and effort plus God's involvement exceeds human productivity. 
There was plenty of food, plenty of quail, plenty of manna. There was, because God's economic system is based on God's resources, which are enough to provide for all the true needs of his people. God has unlimited resources available to him. So we see, for example, in chapter 16 here, back in verse uh, 16, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need. One omer for each person, according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. So according to each one's needs, God can provide with, if, if, if we're working, if we're putting forth effort, God can provide then enough to fulfill our, our needs. And, and so, uh, this was something through this lesson of the manna that, that couldn't be understood simply, purely by u- using human understanding and reasoning. In fact, manna means what is it? Uh, that's the, the literal translation is, is what is it? In, in a sense, God, God's system is just in time according to your needs. And so this is what we see here. As we go down to verse 20, notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses. Some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. In other words, they, they, they gathered more. They were not trusting and having faith in God's ability to provide the next day. They were storing up more for, for themselves, and God did not, did not sanction this. You know, in a, in a, in a sense, them gathering extra, was not part of his plan. He wanted them to rely on him every day. Uh, it, was, it was an example of God's promise to provide adequate means of support for the people if they o- obeyed him. Now, you can see uh, other places that where we read about, about this whole episode, uh, Numbers chapter 11, for example. Um, we read in Psalms, if you flip forward to, to, to Psalms, Uh, Psalms 78, Psalm 78. This, this episode is referred to many times in the scripture. We read, for example, Psalm 78 and verse 17, 18, 19, 20. We read, Behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? So he's re- relying back on, uh, they're, they're referring back to this, this ex- the example of this episode. Therefore, he, the, the psalmist says, Therefore the Lord heard this and was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also came up against Israel, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Yet he had commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. He had rained down manna on them to eat and given them the bread of, of heaven. Men ate angels' food. He sent them food to the full. So we see that God provided what they need according to their faith. And in other examples, the loaves and the fishes in the New Testament, the miracles of Christ. Now God provided what they needed and he provided a little bit more. He provided plenty. Uh, the example of having leftovers with the miracles and the loaves of fishes, it wasn't enough for everyone to take some home and save it for another day. It was enough to show that he could provide and more. But, but, the, but the lesson was, was that he could take care of their needs. Back in Leviticus chapter 25, Leviticus chapter 25, 
We read verse 18, So you shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments and perform them, and you will dwell in the land in safety. And then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell there in safety. So fundamental principle then, first fundamental principle is this. In God's economic system, there is an assumption of prosperity, not an expectation of scarcity. What drives man's economic systems is scarcity and an assumption of scarcity. So you stockpile. So the price is driven by scarcity or by abundance. And, and scarcity drives the, the economic system. But in God's system, there's an assumption of plenty and of prosperity. Now, that's a totally different way of thinking than what we're used to. And, and as we go through these principles, brethren understand that some of the principles of God are so unfamiliar to us that we can very easily think, oh, they they can't apply in the real world. Isn't this what happens with the Sabbath day? Where many people, when they first learn about the Sabbath day, think, this is not possible. I can't survive. My family cannot live if I don't work on the Sabbath day, on the seventh day of the week. And so what they're doing is they're thinking based on man's thinking, an assumption of scarcity, as opposed to God's thinking and God's principles that that are based on faith. If we have faith in God, God will provide from us, from six days of work, enough for seven days of sustenance. So it's a completely different way of thinking. So as we go, go through... You have to step back a little bit, even from our, our natural inclinations, and we, we must because this is what we're going to teach in God's kingdom to come. So we see with, with, with faith and obedience, God will provide plenty. Now, of course, that leads to other questions we're not going to address right now, but what will the millennium be like when faithfulness in God replaces Confidence in the dollar, confidence in the marketplace, confidence in our own government and government policies that are based on capitalism and other isms of, of the world today. Those are questions that are worth investigating where we, when we think about this application of just the one principle that I've, I've focused upon here up to this point. But let's continue. Now, I want to continue by, by talking about about something that's called the Kondratiev wave. Uh, Kondratiev was a professor in the the Soviet Union in Russia, and he wrote a lot and studied a lot about what ultimately became called the Kondratiev wave. And it was was a it's an economic theory that there's a, a a wave cycle in economics going throughout history, and. He focused upon it by looking at history down through uh, the, the records that we have going back into, into history. And he concluded there were four, four distinct phases of, of economics in any community, nation, kingdom. Uh, it, the first one he called spring. In other words, it was what he called beneficial inflation. And then came summer, uh, stagflation. And then came a what he called a beneficial deflation in this cycle, which was referred to as autumn. And then came, of course, winter, where there was complete deflation. And he looked, he looked at these cycles, concluded that about every 
50 years, about every 50 years, this cycle would, would, would function. The last Kondratiev cycle ended around 1949 or 50, roughly speaking. So we can look over the past uh, 50, 60 years, and this is, a, again, this is a rough cycle, but we can look over even our recent history, we can look at some of these characteristics. Of course, that puts us in a point in our days that ultimately will lead to that deflation or depression, and um, not to encourage in that regard. Well, you know, God knows about cycles. He invented them, didn't he? If we go to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, The very beginning of the book, we read about cycles, don't we? We read how, verse 3, God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and he divided the light from the darkness. In other words, he created a cycle, didn't he? He called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day and the first cycle. We go on, and we read about how he established in verse 14, uh, the lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. So he set in motion earthly cycles and cycles in, in the heavens above with the stars, the sun, and the, and the moon. So we read about the, the cycles that God established right from the beginning. There's another cycle we read about, isn't there? In chapter 2, we read how verse uh, verse. Verse 2, on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And he blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he had rested from all his work which God had created and made. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about a cycle, a seven-day cycle that God established. But he created other cycles, didn't he? We might think about the 19-year time cycle in prophecy, for, for example. But actually, there are two other cycles that we should be aware of for our millennial economics. In order to understand them, however, we need to understand something else. And that is God's system of, of land ownership. Let's go to Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25, reviewing... The first principle in God's economic system, the first principle is the economics of faith. I'll just put it generally. Understanding the economics of faith and all that means. Second principle, then, is going to call the economics of land or land as capital, the importance of, of land. That land, that understanding that, though, means an understanding of God's system of land ownership, which is based on the reality that he, the, he, he owns all. All belongs to him. Leviticus chapter 25. And we read in beginning in verse 23. The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. So, in other words, there's, at the core of God's system of economics, we find ownership of land, but only 
ownership as a, you might say, a, a custodian on behalf of God the Creator. It belongs to Him. So He gets to make the rules as to how land is used, how land, is, how, how it functions within the economic system. So God is the sole owner of the universe. And back in, in chapter 20, chapter 25, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. We see here in verse, in verse 1, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. So God is the giver of the, of, of the land, and he begins to, to establish the rules for how, for how it works. And this, this changes the whole perspective towards land and capital. The land, then, we begin to read, was to be permanently divided and based on an equal and just system. Let's flip forward to Numbers chapter 25. Numbers 25. I'm sorry, Numbers 26. And we read here, for example, As they came into the land, verse 51, These are those who were numbered of the children of Israel, Six hundred and one thousand seven. I'm sorry, six hundred and one thousand seven hundred and thirty. And verse fifty-two. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "To these the land shall be divided as an inheritance, according to the number of names. To a large tribe you shall give a larger inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a smaller inheritance. Each shall be given its inheritance according to those who were numbered of them. But the land shall be divided by lot." They shall inherit according to the names of the tribes of their fathers. And then we read more, more detail about how they, this was done and all the different families. Uh, Numbers 33, a few chapters later. Numbers 33. And we read here in verse uh, 51, for example. Speak to the children. He says, speak to the children of Israel, verse 51, and say to them, when you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, destroy all their engraved stones, destroy all their molded images, and demolish all their high places. But you shall, and you shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, for I have given you the land to possess, and you shall divide the land by lot as an inheritance among your families. To the larger you shall give a larger inheritance, and to the smaller you shall give a smaller inheritance. There everyone's inheritance shall be whatever falls to him by lot. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. So God gave directions about how the land was to be divided, and he focused upon land as this fundamental resource for productivity and prosperity. Now, by the way... It's nothing like today's world, is it? The way property and capital is handled and managed in today's world is, is, is very different. In fact, it can be accumulated by people and by families, and it can be accumulated by, uh, by individuals, not just land, but also capital, so that over a period of time, the accumulation is so great that we can have a fraction of, for example, our nation's population owning a majority of whether it be uh, capital as a whole or commodities or production. Uh, but in terms of the wealth of the nation, you can have a small percentage of people owning a vast degree of the wealth. And this has been, this is what's happened over history, by the way. This is nothing new. Have you ever noticed that, that 
things get out of kilter as you look back in, in history. And you get to a point in different places. I was reading recently about the, uh, in the er- days of the early American colonists. And uh, we read is in the time of the American Revolution, the 1700s, one of the major issues that was, was happening economically was the rise of the, uh, of the Scottish uh, tobacco barons. How uh, the the control and trade of tobacco was being uh, was being managed by just a handful of extremely wealthy uh, Scottish barons who controlled uh, uh, immense the economy of this of this of this trade back and forth across the Atlantic to a degree that they could manipulate prices and and so they developed a vast amount of wealth. So this, this is a history that, this, this is an attribute of history that we see again and again and again. But what happens is ultimately, ultimately, th- things get to the point where through revolution or war, one thing or another, the cycle comes to an end and that uh, that wealth is is destroyed and redistributed in one way or another. And that, that goes back to the Kondratiev wave uh, theory, this idea of economic cycles. And so what we find in, in God's system is that he built in correcting mechanisms. So let's go to Exodus 23, and let's read about that. He built correcting mechanisms, economic method, me- mechanisms, into the community. So we read Exodus 23. And verse 10, six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. So in other words, they, he established a land Sabbath. A year, one year, the seventh year, when the land was to lie rest, and it was to be available to all the community, including the poor, to, to eat. And it was not to be, to be worked. It was not to be worked. We read that about the same statute in Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. And you shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. In other words, it's a year you do not work the land. You do not produce and work as you would normally do. He said, verse 5, What grows of its own, own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. There are different uh, arguments about what this means. Some say this means that those who are the owners and producers are not able to, to, uh, to actually reap, but simply those among the community and the poor are the ones who would be able to, to reap. Um, others uh, say that it actually means more the sense of production that you should you can gather you can collect but you cannot do it as if you are in production mode. Re- regardless, what we see is this is a special year that they are to stop the production and let the land and let the community who are involved in the production rest. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you. So so they were to eat of it. 
for you, your male and female servants, your hired man and the stranger who dwells with you, for your livestock and the beasts that are in your land, all its produce shall be for food. So what, what did this mean? Let's analyze it a little bit. So we see a cycle established, and, and as a result, number one, they had to have faith in God to give them production enough so that the previous year would provide enough for not only that year, but also the seventh year. Uh, we see a benefit for the land, because the land was allowed to rest, and that's a benefit to the soil. Uh, we, we see a time, if you begin to sort of peel back what this was all about, that they could engage in in more rest. They could engage in activities of, of repair, uh, fences and equipment and, and, and their, their homes. More time could go into the repair and restoration because they were, they were commanded not to be focused upon the production. I was reading some years ago a book by um, Masanoba Fukuoka. He's a, a, Japanese, um, a Japanese farmer scientist, and uh, he, t- he, he wrote a book called One Straw Revolution. If you uh, want to read something interesting about sustainable agriculture, read this book, One Straw Revolution. E- excellent, excellent book. But he, he talks about in modern times, because there's no let-up in productivity and the pushing of the, of the land, he, find, he says it's, it's, it is, it's lacking something that years ago was part of the basic agricultural uh, cycle. And, and he describes how in years ago, in the cold time, in the winter time, after the crop had been uh, pro- produced, in the winter time, it was a time to slow down. And, and the farmers would repair, this is in Japan, farmers would repair their equipment. They would tell stories and sing songs, and they would write poetry. They would focus on the arts. And he, he describes how life slowed down in the, in the, the off-season. He says, today there's no off-season. It's 24-7, 365 days a year. Everything you can get out of the land, everything that you can get out of a person. And, and that's, that's very different from what he describes. But when I read what we have right here, what we're reading about really is a year that could be focused upon other endeavors like this, restorative endeavors, much like the Sabbath day. So the cycle is, is broken. Education, study and education could be able to be a focus during this time. But Deuteronomy chapter 15, we read something else that brings joy to this cycle. Deuteronomy chapter 15. We see at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or brother because it is called the Lord's release. So we read about the seventh year being a a year of release of debts. Now, what would this do to an economic system? You know, our economic system today is based on credit and debt to a large degree, isn't it? So, you know, this is why I say we have to step away from isms. Because this does not fit with our capitalism of today. Sounds more like communism, doesn't it? But we can't get attached to labels. We have to step back from all the labels and our our preconceptions that are, are taught to us by our environment. And we have to focus, if we're going to teach God's way, we need to analyze what he says in terms of what we're supposed to do and teach to establish 
systems, including an economic system. And in God's economic system, the seventh year was a year of release of debts. And that would turn things upside down in terms of how we function financially. Now, verse 3, of a foreigner you may require it, but you shall give up your claim to what is owed by your brother. Why a foreigner? Well, it's understandable if the Israelites were all keeping this law, but the foreigners wouldn't. You can see the unfair advantage where the foreigners could come and borrow money, and then uh, on the seventh year, the debt would be forgiven by the Israelites, but the favor would not be returned. So Israelites would borrow money from a foreigner, let's say, but they wouldn't be forgiven because they would not live by God's law. So you can see why that clause is put in there. But in, in, a, in a, a world that lives by God's laws, then that would not be a, a part of the equation. So he says, except there, when there be, may be no poor among you, then for the Lord will greatly bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. Only if you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe with care all these commandments which I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you just as he promised you. God will bless you if you're obedient. The economics of faith. And also we see the, the economics of, of land as the core uh, uh, source and function of, of, of capital. Debt is released, and we also see another aspect here. Let's go to Leviticus, back to Leviticus 25. So the, the cycle of poverty could not be deepened and deepened and deepened to the point where it becomes simply unmanageable, both personally and as a nation. We see Leviticus 25, another principle then of economic system. Leviticus 25. We were here before. I want to pick up where we left off. We read here of the Sabbath, the seventh year land Sabbath and, and debt Sabbath. We read here in verse 8, And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, and the time of these seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you forty-nine years. And then you shall cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. And what a wonderful sound this was to the inhabitants of the land. Because at this time we read, This year you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. And it shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. So they were to return to their ancestral heritage. This, this phrase comes from the, the root to grasp. They're able to hold on to this ancestral heritage. Now, there, there are so, some ramifications of this then to, to think about. Number one, this reinforces the fact that God is the true owner. So human, any human owner cannot permanently sell his property because God is the owner and we have to follow God's laws. And, and the second thing we learn is in the 50th year, all the land that had been alienated or sold away during the previous 50 years would return to its original owner or closest heirs. Now, think about this as an impact upon society. You see, what God amazingly knows is that with economics, things get topsy-turvy. They're within families, within individuals, decisions are, are made that result in 
poor consequences financially. Sometimes things happen in terms of one thing or another, but, all, but within society, what happens is in order to function, in order to live, uh, typically there are some who do better and some who do worse for one reason or another. But within the lifetime, you might say, of every individual, there's a chance to have a fresh start. So for one, it encouraged this this whole concept of thinking of your brothers and thinking of your community in terms not just of what you can get and build and to yourself, but how that's going to impact that family in time to come and how you're going to have to return the land ultimately if you purchase it. A couple other things that are implied by this, and, and one is that if the land is going to return to your family, even if you have to sell land or part of it or your possession, that that it behooves you to think long-term. In other words, plant trees, build with care, build with quality, because you, your descendants will reap the benefits of that, of, of that time and effort and quality that you put into your land, because it will be your land or your, your descendants. This is, this is a, a, a fundamental change in perspective from our time today where we're not attached to any place. We move around like chess pieces on a, on a board in our economic system with no attachment to any, 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 any place. So land is to be handled, therefore, with, with a responsibility to the past and to the, the future. I have an example of that. Um, we see 1 Kings chapter 21. Uh, Naboth thought this way. When we read 1 Kings chapter 21... We see how Naboth, he valued his family inheritance. And when he was threatened by the king, he resisted because he honored that family inheritance. So we see here, verse 1, it came to pass, this is 1 Kings 21, came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the place of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near next to my house, and for it I will give you a vineyard better than it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. So he recognized and he valued that family inheritance, and he was unwilling to to, to give it up. Now, if we go back to Leviticus 25 quickly, Leviticus 25, we can see that as part of the regulation, that cities were to be handled differently. Leviticus 25 and verse 29. Uh, Again, I'm not going to be able to read every bit of this. I I would encourage you to do so. Every bit of this chapter, and think about it. Think about the ramifications, how it's different from our our systems today, and also how we can we, we can implement it, and how it changes fundamentally the thinking. But he says, for example, verse 29: If a man sells a house in a walled city, then he may redeem it within a whole year after it is sold. Within a full year, he may redeem it. So this is part of the of the the uh, the system here is the the ability to redeem property, and you can read about that early in the chapter. But, but here he says, what I want to focus upon is, 
He says, if it is not redeemed within the space of a full year, then the house and the walled city shall belong permanently to him who bought it throughout his generations. It shall not be released in the Jubilee. So within the cities, land was able to be sold permanently. So God established differences in how the the economy was to be functioned. In Numbers uh, chapter 35, Numbers 35, verses 1 through 8, for example, we read about how the Levites received 48 towns, and each one was surrounded by open land, 2,000 cubits wide. You can read how that's described. And, and any part of the, the, the Levite property could be redeemed immediately, whether it was a house or a field, uh, because this was their only heritage. So they could be, they could actually, uh, sell it, but then a, a, a relative could come buy it back at any point in time. Now, remember through this all, this is still an, an issue of, of faith because with the Jubilee year, with the Jubilee year, you'd be required to make it through two years in addition to the present year before production was to come again. So it still is based on the economics of faith and that God would provide and he would be able to sustain the community through the, the years of the, the land Sabbath and the Jubilee. A couple of bigger picture issues in terms of the establishment of God's kingdom on the earth for example, one is how will land be distributed? And because we, we're, will it be based upon families like we see? Or how will that, how will it be dis- distributed? Um, because we'll be in a different time. So there's a, a question that we'll have to see exactly how that will be taken, how that will happen, how it will be taken care of. Um, There's another question, what about the nations at large? Because we read in Acts chapter 17, we read the same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, how how God had set boundaries of nations and peoples throughout the world. So this system is going to have to be implemented on a worldwide basis. So there's lots of room for details as to how the land will be distributed in an organized and fair, equitable, just way. It will not be done like the Oklahoma land rush, where people will dash to try to stake their claim, and it won't be done that way. Uh, we can see based upon, based upon what we read here in the Scriptures that it will be established in an organized and, uh, and, and godly way, fair way. Let's move to one, one, one more area before we conclude here. Let's move to one more area, and that is the economics of godly business ethics. The economics of godly business ethics. Again, as a review, I've talked first of all about the economics of faith. Secondly, we focused upon the economics of land as capital and as the, the fundamental basis for fairness and equity within society. The seventh year land Sabbath and debt release and then the Jubilee year. And we just touched briefly upon how that would impact society. The third area we're going to focus upon is then the economics of godly business ethics. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 21. I I mentioned the Levites here a moment ago and how they were given, uh, they were given the possession of, of certain cities, these 48 cities. 
And what is left unsaid is that they did not receive land as a whole throughout the whole land of, of what was to become the land of Israel. Uh, they did not receive uh, a, a portion among all the land. They were given the uh, cities, possession of cities, and, and that had an impact. And the first, the first point of godly business ethics and the economic impact that we'll focus upon is Levites in the role of impartial administrators. Levites in the role as impartial administrators. Now, if you read here beginning in verse 1, you read about the law concerning unsolved murder. And we see here that uh, if anyone is slain, lying in the field in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance from the slain man to the surrounding cities. And it shall be that the elders of the city nearest the slain to the slain man will take a heifer which has not been worked and which is not pulled with a yoke, and the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with flowing water which is neither plowed nor sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck there in the, in the valley. Opposite of the high places, interestingly, in terms of how they were to function, uh, the pagan uh, worship system and, and uh, their, their systems involve high places. But continuing, we see verse 5, Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near to the Lord, I'm sorry, so shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord by their word. Every controversy and every assault shall be settled. So we see that it was the word of the Levites that was to establish the decisions concerning controversies, and and this was a, a responsibility that was given to them. Uh, we can read here in Deuteronomy chapter 16, few chapters later, a few chapters earlier rather, Deuteronomy chapter 16. And I think it's interesting, verse 18, when we read about how judges were to be appointed, judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, they shall judge the people with just judgment. We see that the beginning of the system, but here we see back in Leviticus, Deuteronomy 21, how along with these village judges and uh, uh, officers, we see Levites were to be to take a, a role in leading in the judgment. Now, why, why am I bringing that in in terms of economics? Well, let's go to Leviticus chapter 6. What happens when you have individuals making judgments, sometimes judgments, that determine issues regarding boundaries, and uh, and other economic issues when you have individuals who themselves have no property or right to property. Well, you have impartial judges, don't you? Because they have nothing to gain by the decisions they make. I'll show you what I mean here in Leviticus chapter 6. Leviticus chapter 6. Here, verse 1. We read, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying... If a person sins and commits a trespass against the Lord by lying to his neighbor about what was delivered to him for safekeeping or about a pledge or about a robbery or he has extorted from his neighbor, 
Or if he has found what was lost and lies concerning it and swears falsely in any one of these things that a man may do in which he sins, then it shall be because he has sinned and is guilty that he shall restore what he has stolen or the thing which he has extorted or what was delivered to him for safekeeping or the lost thing which he found or all that about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore to it restore its full value, add one-fifth more to it, and give it to whomever it belongs on the day of his trespass offering. And he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord, a ram without blemish from the flock, with your valuation as a trespass offering to the priests. So the priest was to be involved here. So the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things which he may have done in which he trespasses. So we see the priests... It beginning to be involved, of, of course, the priests were part of the Levites as a whole, but they were to do the valuation. They were to, ultimately, we can read how, for example, in verse, uh, uh, verse 6, it talks about the valuation being done by, by the priests. Um, we read in Leviticus 27, about how the Levites were to set the, the weight of the shekel of the sanctuary. And this is mentioned 24 or 25 times in the Pentateuch uh, about this, uh, the, the weight of the shekel being established by the, by the, the Levites. So the key point in this is that, again, back in Numbers 26, we read they had no inheritance. So they were able to act as impartial, impartial, uh, judges and administrators who would not benefit from their judicial decisions. Now, th- think about this as compared to the, quote, Christian church through the centuries. Who has benefited in villages and towns and cities? Who benefited from uh, judgment, sometimes even uh, uh, the, the, the penalty of trespassing against in, in civil matters? Many times... The church, the local church, the local church authorities would actually gobble up land so that over a period of time, one of the greatest landholders and wealth holders in Europe was the Catholic church. Well, that would not, that doesn't, that cannot happen within God's system of of business ethics, as I've described. Now, I mentioned just a couple other things that... that you can think about in terms of godly business, business ethics that are touched upon in the scriptures about the tithing system. Within the tithing system, we understand the tithing system and how it was to, be, uh, how it was, how it was to function. We understand that the tithe, the, the first, we call it the first tithe, but the, 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 the first tithe that was to be established, we, we use the term first, it's not in the scriptures necessarily, but it was a tenth of their income, was to go to the priests, the Levites, the functioning of, of, of them, and this allowed them to, for one, to make these judicial decisions and, and administer as a, a final court some of the decisions that were made. But also what it did, the tithing system with the festival tithe, it encouraged, you might say, uh, inter-area commerce. It, it encouraged the development of a currency. Because when people would travel to Jerusalem, we read how they would, if necessary, turn their production into money. Well, what does that do? That produces, that, that, that produces a need for a currency that can be exchanged 
throughout a broad area. We see the tithing system also, as I said, to talk about inter-area commerce. Well, because people would go to the feasts. They would go up to the feasts in Jerusalem. What would happen over, over time as they began to follow God's command to keep the feast? Well, they meet different people. They meet others who have different products that they can be able to, at some point, uh, buy and sell. So the feast and the keeping of the festival tithe, and the, then the spending and using of the festival, festival tithe, actually encouraged commerce and business and economics. I've just given you a couple of examples of how that would, that would happen. There are other principles in the scriptures. For example, no cheating. No lying, no stealing. Um, we read about the management of debt, even uh, even how they were to lend to their their brother at a zero interest, and they were to uh, they were to return. They were to hold uh, if they held something, a cloak, as a uh, as as collateral. They were to return that cloak to them, uh, so they could be able to not be cold at night. So we see a, a multitude of principles. We just scratched the surface of some of the principles. Uh, another one I noted as we could spend some time on in Leviticus 19 is the gleaning of corners. So in other words, allow the extra to be reaped by the, by the, the poor, those who are in need in the community. And that's a principle that goes actually beyond to other business. Be generous. Our extra, if we have extra, we share with those who are in need. Some of these principles in today's time, we have to, we have to ask the question, how do we apply them? How do we apply the seventh year land Sabbath today? How do we apply the Jubilee year and the principles from the Jubilee year? We can't do the Jubilee year today. It has to be done on a, a national basis in order for it to work, doesn't it? It has to be done by everyone. But instead, we can take the principle, we can take the understanding, the mind of God, and apply it to us. And certainly the application is that we need to be generous. We need to, at times, we need to, if we lend, we need to forgive that and not expect it to, to be returned. And if we can't afford to give it, be very careful about, about lending. Uh, but generosity and uh, concern for those who are in need is a big part of the mind of, of God in terms of how we are to think, how we are to function. And we can learn those principles today. But our focus as we keep the Feast of Tabernacles is forward, is largely forward. And for today's sermon, focusing upon some of these principles and how they will change our very economic system. So when we come to the feast, we are clearly told what to do to enjoy ourselves. We're told in very practical terms. We learn in very practical terms uh, how, how to prepare ourselves and what activities we'll be doing and how we are to dress and conduct ourselves and when we are to be at our services and a whole host of other instructions and guidelines about how we, how we do things. But when it comes to how to govern in Christ's kingdom, you know, we're also given some very practical guidelines, of which I've just uh, focused upon briefly today. And I hope that as you think about the future, you'll study through the Bible and think about some of the practical principles that are given, because these are the principles that we will be teaching. Let's go to Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4, and we'll conclude here. 
At the Feast of Tabernacles, we have a chance to enjoy plenty. As you do, think about how we will share plenty, how we will teach people to have plenty through obedience to God in his kingdom that will be established in the future. Micah chapter 4 and verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. Now, God's systems will be the systems that will be in place. None of man's systems will, will come into that world, brethren. Man's systems are not going to be just cleaned up a little bit and tweaked and then imported into that, into that time. And we, we're not going to bring little vestiges of man's philosophies and thinking today into that time. No, instead, God's system, God's mountain, his government, and his ways of governing will be established and be exalted above the hills. And people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways. He will teach his ways through you and me. And we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between many peoples, and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war any more. But every one shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. They'll have their possession, their opportunity to, to, to have abundance through the obedience to God's ways, God's laws. For all people walk in the name of his God. That's the way it is today. Sometimes it's the God of economics, the God of man's ways, man's philosophies and man's thinking. Sometimes it's been a pagan gods that promise abundance. But no, not in that time. It says, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Enjoy the rest of the feast and focus upon these economic principles as you study the Bible for our benefit in the future so we can be able to teach God's way as we've been instructed to do.